Welcome to NextWorks Innovation Talks. Let our podcast inspire you with inside stories and conversations about innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the NextWorks podcast. I'm your host, Laurence van Eerlingham, and today I'll be talking to Dave Snowden. Dave is a Welsh management consultant, researcher in the field of knowledge management, and he is known for the development of the Kinevan framework. He is also the founder and the chief scientific officer of Cognitive Edge, a Singapore-based management consulting firm specialized in complexity and sense-making. So welcome, Dave. I'm very happy to have you on the show. Pleasure to be with you. I'm sure that people ask you this every time, and so I really apologize in advance, but can you please explain what the Kinevan framework is and why it is useful for managing companies? Okay, so Kinevin as a framework has evolved over about 15, 20 years. Started off knowledge management, extended to complexity and uncertainty theory, and then into strategic decision support and various other areas. Um, the basic premise of Kinevin is that there are three fundamental types of system which exist in nature. Ordered systems, complex systems, and chaotic systems. And those systems are separated by phase shifts. The best way to explain that is if you boil water to 100 degrees, it doesn't immediately become steam. You have to put more heat in before it makes a phase transition. Similarly, you know, when it snows, um, effectively liquid has to become solid, so that throws out heat, which is why it warms up a little bit before it snows. So a system is ordered, complex, or chaotic, and there are energy gradients between them. So what Kinevin does is to basically say these are fundamentally different. So an ordered system is one with a high level of constraint, and it separates into two types of order, one where the relationship between cause and effect is clear to any reasonable person. So in the UK, we drive on the left. In Sweden, they drive on the right and so on. So there's a, a clear relationship between cause and effect, and all reasonable people buy into it. So in that domain, you can actually apply best practice. You just simply categorize things and you do what you're told. The other type of order is complicated, and that's where it may be clear to experts, but not to decision maker. So from the decision maker's point of view, you have to bring in expertise or commission analysis or research to find out what you should do. But the point about both of the ordered domains is that there is a right answer and it is knowable. Uh, it may even be known if it's in the clear domain. Uh, the chaotic domain, on the other hand, is one where there are no constraints at all and no effective constraints. So behavior is de facto random. <clears throat> that means in a human system, it can't exist for long. Uh, people impose order very quickly. But a sudden catastrophic failure can produce massive chaos and people just don't know where they are. Used deliberately, and we do work on this, removing all constraints is a way to do innovation or distributed decision support. But that's the kind of like more advanced conversation. So chaos accidentally is an undesirable state. Deliberately is a controlled entry. Takes a lot of energy. And then we get the third, the complex state. In a complex state, there are what are called enabling constraints. So Everything is connected with everything else in some way, but the connections are not fully knowable. Alicia Gerraro, who's written a brilliant book on the subject, famously said it's a complex system is like bramble bushes in a thicket. 
So you've got a dense woodland with bramble bushes growing through it. You know there are separate plants, but you just simply can't separate them. The connections are far too complex. Mm -hmm. In a human system, we also have what I term dark constraints. So you can see the impact of something, but you don't know what the cause is. So the essential feature of a complex system is that there is no predictability and there is no linear material causality. The danger with a complex system is that with the benefit of hindsight, anybody can attribute causality. Mm -hmm. um, and so we get it wrong. We do a lessons learned process. We think we've got it fixed. Next time it goes wrong again, but in a subtly different way. So Kinevin has five domains. So I've listed four. Um, in order, we have clear and complicated. Then we have complex. Then we have chaotic. The fifth and critical is the disordered or now what we call confused space, which is in the center of the framework. And it's a state of not knowing which sort of system you are in. And that can be legitimate, i.e. we've just been plunged in, we know we don't know, so we're going to do something about it. Or it can be illegitimate, kind of like, well, we think we know what we're doing and we're not prepared to listen to people who say we're wrong. So the essence of Kinevin and its usefulness is to work out which of the domains you're in or how you want to move between domains. And then you choose different methods or tools according to the domain. So things like process re-engineering work really well in a clear domain, but are really bad in a complex domain. Mm -hmm. uh, methods like one of our methods, social network stimulation, which uses self-organizing teams within a reward framework to rapidly try and solve problems is a complex systems technique, but you wouldn't apply it for an ordered system where you already know the answer, just get in the right experts. So rough summary, that's what Kinevin is about. It's a sense-making framework, and I define sense-making as how do we make sense of the world so that we can act in it. So the basic principle is what type of system are we in or what type of movement are we trying to achieve? Okay, having done that, how do we move between domains? Okay. I just have one side question because you, you started by saying that in nature there are three systems. Yeah. Why did you split up the ordered parts into simple and complicated and not, not just do the three parts like you, you started with? I sometimes do do the three parts, but the, the key thing is you're dealing with human beings. So the field that I designated is called anthrocomplexity. I, human beings make systems complex. Mm-hmm. So there's a, the distinction between clear and complicated is important for practical decision-making. If everybody can see the relationship with cause and effect, why are you bringing in experts or doing more analysis? If I land in the UK, mm -hmm. assuming we ever get the pandemic over, mm -hmm. then I know it's one of those countries that drive on the left, so I drive on the left. I don't need to ask an expert or do analysis to discover it. So that distinction is important, okay. and disorder is key because that's the normal human state. We're not, to use the academic language, ontologically aware. Uh, we're generally not aware of the type of system we're in. Yeah. I heard you mention in the keynote that we do not see what we do not intend to see when you were referring to confirmation bias. So is knowing where you are in the framework the hardest part, according to uh, you? Yes and no. I think two things. First of all, when I talk about that, we're talking about inattentional blindness rather than mm -hmm. confirmation bias. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And generally, I mean, with Klein, I, I never use the word bias. Evolution doesn't throw out things which don't have utility. So-called cognitive biases are actually decision-making heuristics. Most of the time they work. So the best example of this, which is the one I was referencing in that keynote, is if you give a 
group of radiologists a batch of x-rays. On the final x-ray, you put a picture of a gorilla in plain sight, which is 48 times the size of a cancer nodule. And on average, 83% of radiologists will not see it, even though their eyes scan it. Mm-hmm. And the 17% who see it believe they were wrong when they talked with the 83% who didn't. Now, the point about that is you can't afford to look at everything all the time. So human beings take shortcuts because it's the only way we handle the energy consumption. So you need to start to create methods and tools which make the 17% visible. And that's actually where we do what we call the dive into chaos, to deliberately disconnect agents from each other and then look at the pattern of their interpretation. So we can make the 17% visible before they talk to the 83% who don't have seen something. Okay. So where would you exactly put innovation in the Kinevan framework? I would think on the on the left unordered side but is it only in the chaotic side or only in, or also in the complex no, side i mean i mean experts innovate if I, if i go through three types of innovation right so you, mm-hmm. you don't see innovation in the clear space you see it in complicated and that's what i call incremental innovation so it's experts looking at a problem improving things doing novel things making them work yeah mm-hmm. mm-hmm. with that it's very useful In the chaotic domain, and this is something I said a long time ago, that you should never miss the opportunity to exploit a good crisis. Mm -hmm. During a crisis, complete novelty is possible. Human beings are hugely inventive during times of war, for example. In a complex domain, you're talking about something which is called exaptive innovation, which is one of the most powerful types. So exaptation is a concept from evolutionary biology. So dinosaurs' feathers evolve for sexual display, but then when enough dinosaurs fall off cliffs, the ones with lots of feathers glide, so we get flight. So as opposed to adaptation, you have exaptation. So exaptation is a trait which evolved for one function being used for something completely different under stress. Another, if you want a more recent example, 1945, a Raytheon engineer maintaining the magneto of a radar machine notices as a chocolate bar melts in their pocket, we get microwave ovens. Mm-hmm. So in the complex domain where you've got little time to respond and you've got a tendency towards conservatism anyway, what you start to do is to match unarticulated needs against known capabilities. So innovation is finding ways to accept something you're already good at for something nobody has realized you could do very quickly. Are you saying that the most interesting innovation are the accidents and that you yeah. can't really manage them, in fact? Well, no, you can. I mean, we talk about managing for serendipity. So part of the new approach we developed, say, as an alternative to a day on design thinking, mm-hmm. captures unarticulated needs in fragmented form and matches them against existing camp capabilities in fragmented forms and shows clusters of the two to suggest ideas that you might not otherwise spot. So... The popular opinion tends to be that we are moving into increasingly VUCA times. So for the people who don't know this, that we are moving into more volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous times. What do you think about that? Do you think that our human systems are increasingly shifting towards the left, unordered side of the framework? No, I think they've always been there. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is the consequences now are higher. So if you go back, I mean, let's take the coronavirus, all right? I mean, the plague killed off a higher percentage of the population than it will. But the population size and the impact on the planet, the interdependency, the nature of the economy, although it ended feudalism, was not catastrophic. Mm -hmm. This one may be catastrophic because we're consuming the planet's resources and we've got a huge population. 
So I think the difference in modern times is not the nature of what's going on. That's always been VUCA. I'm not wild about that phrase anyway. It's the consequences of not getting it right which have got harder. Mm -hmm. So do you think that outbreaks like uh, the coronavirus, do you think that they could be nature's way of self-regulating? There's a danger of anthropomorphizing nature there, and we'll be into Gaia theory. It's, it's uh -huh. like people who anthropomorphize God, right? Uh -huh. um, intentionality is something which is probably uniquely human. No, I think we're quite lucky with coronavirus in some way. There was going to be a pandemic. Proximity of humans to animals, um, transportation, infection rates, something like this was going to happen. Mm -hmm. To some extent, we're quite lucky that this will only cull a percentage of the population. It's not fatal, like the plague was. So it's a real opportunity to work out ways that we're going to manage this, because this is the first of many. Yeah, we're, you know, Population continues to go up, Earth resources goes down, animals and humans increasingly interacting, chemical composition of feed, the overuse of antibiotics, increases the possibility of pathogens transferring between species. It's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. yeah? mm -hmm. So we should be using, in fact, we got programs which we're rolling out at the moment. We should be using this virus as an opportunity to learn how to handle more deadly ones in future. Mm -hmm. So some people are saying that this is a black swan event and that we could not have seen this coming, but it, I, I see that you disagree. Uh, yeah, and I, I can't, yeah, the Talib is, is good and bad, right? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> he doesn't tolerate anybody who disagrees with him or doesn't bad anybody. <laughs> No, I mean, I don't anybody think so. who knows that philosophy knows that Black Swan is an example of a category error by Potter, who said it would not be a surprise if we saw black swans. Mm -hmm. You know, the definition of swan does not include that they're white. Either way, that aside, um, we knew that some type of catastrophic event would happen. I mean, that was inevitable, and there was some preparation for it, but not enough. The early response is too slow. And very unfortunately, we had populist governments in Brazil, the UK and US and Italy mm -hmm. to a lesser extent, right? And populist governments don't handle hard decisions well. They try and avoid them. Mm -hmm. And of course, every hour's delay, every day's delay in taking drastic actions makes the thing worse, not better. So can we circle back to the Kinevan framework? Mm -hmm. Am I right in assuming that's the pandemic started out as chaotic and that we are trying as much as we can to push it into the complex no, part? Or, or no, how, it started how do you... out as disordered. Uh -huh. okay. so, and that's the importance of the disorder. It started off as disordered and you had a mixture of responses. So instead of working out, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff on epidemiology, which is about containment, which is about rapid testing, traceability, confinement. And that expert opinion was taken. So if you look in Korea and elsewhere, they took that approach with considerable success. Mm -hmm. yeah. Other areas, I mean, the UK tried to rely on a particularly odd form of behavioral economics, which relies on two large numbers. Yeah. And it's fairly inhuman and thought they could build herd immunity. Mm -hmm. But as people realized what that meant, they worked away from it very quickly. <laughs> yeah. So I think what you saw is people exiting into complexity. You got some people just doing, oh my God, we can't do anything. It's all chaotic panic, which is not a good idea. But a lot of governments stayed in disorder. They didn't want to make the hard decisions early enough. So which of the governments did you think handled it best and why? Well, we won't know completely to the end, but I think if you look mm -hmm. in terms of best practice, people like Korea, yeah? mm -hmm. uh, people like Singapore, people like Estonia, um, there are people who took the right decisions quite early on. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and there are countries which didn't. I mean, we're two weeks behind Italy at the moment. So we've got to expect that sort of casualty rate within a couple of weeks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some countries definitely handled it badly. America is in a state of denial and there isn't enough authority in the federal center to manage the states. And effectively, it became political far too quickly. And I, th I think one of the things we've got to start to do is to create community understanding of the need for immediate action before it becomes so obvious that people accept it. Do you think that some governments will grab the crisis as an excuse to gain more control over citizens oh, yeah. and that it will be very hard to, to come back from that? You can see that happening already, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, governments like control, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I mean, luckily, I mean, there was an act passed through the British Parliament this week, and fortunately they amended it to review after six months. Mm -hmm. It was originally designed to stand for two years. So that would have allowed banning any assembly as we move up to the Brexit nonsense. Yeah? So governments do seize opportunities. And it wouldn't surprise me to see people trying to postpone elections they think they're going to lose. So you stated before that there is nothing like a crisis to produce innovation. Which innovations do you see surfacing because of the COVID-19 crisis? Which are the most interesting ones uh, for well, you? We don't know yet. I mean, we, we're, we're launching programs at the moment to do mm -hmm. ethnographic narrative capture in families so that families can actually capture stories of what their life is like in isolation. We're looking to capture the stories from families of care workers. So we get that cathartic need for storytelling at the end of the long shift. We mm -hmm. capture that immediate learning. So we need to do a mass lessons learned process. And as I say, we're launching products for that at the moment. Then we need to look at the patterns in it and see how they vary and what worked and what didn't work. I think we're also looking to capture in real time how people innovate when they haven't got the right resources. And one of the other programs we're putting together at the moment, which will run out on trial next week, is to look at the ethics of death decisions because doctors are already having to decide to take somebody off oxygen to give it to somebody else. So effectively, they're choosing to kill people. Mm -hmm. And we haven't thought through that as a society for a few centuries, yet outside the context of war. So we're looking to build an understanding of that and to build heuristics related to it. So I, I often talk about lessons learning, not lessons learned. Mm -hmm. You need to learn lessons when things are happening, not not with the benefit of hindsight. Yes, because you you talked about this earlier that in complex situations, that in hindsight, we tend to make the yes, wrong conclusions. So how can we avoid it this time? That in a few months we will be looking back and saying, "Oh, we should have done this," or "Or these are the the conclusions to make and the, the things to avoid." I think we do it by capturing lessons learned in real time. We do it by lots of agencies looking yeah. at the same issue. We then need to actually look at patterns on that. We need to then look at the correlations with actual disease vectors in terms of what worked and didn't work. We need to think about different types of vector disease. So coronavirus comes on gradually, not suddenly like flu. So that gives us more problems in promulgation in terms of more people can carry it for longer. But we might get ones with different gestation periods. The nightmare is something with, say, a 98% kill rate, which has a six-week gestation period, because that would hit everybody before we could do something about it. So we, we need you to be thinking through some of those scenarios from multiple cognitive perspectives. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we are doing that enough? Uh, no. And I think the other big change, and this is something Robert Polo is talking about, I'm talking about, and other people in the foresight community, is we need what are called anticipatory triggers. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. because you can't predict a disease outbreak, but you can create a trigger when something is more likely and then trigger an automated response. So the minute we knew about the outbreak in China, lots of things should have happened in the next 24 hours. Yeah, it shouldn't have waited for them to pick up and work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think will be permanently changed after the crisis? What will never go back to normal, according to you? Well, if, if you actually look at it at the moment, all right, I mean, within a couple of months, all Western countries are going to be technically bankrupt. So there's no way we can come out of this the way we were before. So one of the issues is, do we emerge into a new form of um, feudalism? Um, or do we come out with something which is more participative, more democratic? And democratic isn't one man or one woman, one vote anymore. Mm-hmm because there's no knowledge of the people you're voting for. Therefore, it's kind of like more a herd behavior. So I think the opportunity exists to rethink democracy, to rethink participation, to rethink identity and meaning. And again, that's something we're going to push some um, narrative-based systems out for next week. Mm-hmm. But that's the optimistic view and, and a view about what we should be doing. But is there not a risk as well? Like, I don't know, World War II also started with a, a huge crisis that things will go completely the other way because of the crisis. Oh, the probability, if you want to go on probabilities, they will. Mm-hmm. It's always easier for far-right fascists to gain control than for people mm-hmm. who think in more liberal terms. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean we haven't got to do things, but we've got to do things. Yeah. And I think there is a chance because the connectivity, if we can get rid of the bots, the connectivity of the world at the moment does allow new forms to emerge. Mm-hmm. But we've got to be thinking about them now, not at the end of the crisis. One of the things I've been thinking about is that do you think that we are creating an environment that is very ill-fitted for us humans, by which I mean that our environment and our companies are becoming increasingly connected and complex, while we humans are actually wired to simplify things in order to understand them? Is there not a fundamental mismatch? I think human beings tend not to simplify things. Yeah, They tend just to do things which is not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So most people live their lives based on proximate interactions, yeah, and just go do it. The nature of who you connect with is really important. One of the problems with the internet is it encourages people to cluster like with like. So a friend of mine in the Canadian mountains came up with a beautiful phrase on this over a decade ago. He said it used to be that every village had an idiot, but it didn't matter because we knew who the idiot was. (laughs) But now the idiots have banded together on the internet to legitimize idiocy. (laughs) And I think that's very true. I think the real danger here is that the internet means it's too easy to only connect with people who think like you and not to be disrupted. So that's one of the areas we've got to do something about. Mm -hmm. i give an example. I made a proposal to the Labour Party two elections ago, Mm -hmm. um, which got turned down, which I think was a pity, right? and said what the Labour Party should be advocating is a form of national service in Britain, which nobody would have expected a socialist party to advocate. That's normally right-wing. But I said what we should be doing is saying you can do it in the armed services or you can do it in you know, overseas aid. But if you do two years after school, which proves you want to contribute to society, we'll pay for your education. If you want to go straight into education, unless it's something like maths or physics, well, you'll have to pay full fees. Now, A, that was a way of handling the ration in the education system. But my main goal was to get young people to meet people from other cultures fast Mm -hmm. before the sort of racial prejudices of living in one area of one country persist. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's connection with difference that we need, not connection with sameness. So 
you said this is something we need to do something about but and, and you gave of course an example but but how could we do something about this in a more systemic way well if you take it a complex systems point of view systemic means multiple small initiatives with common goals and types mm -hmm. you don't achieve it by one massive worldwide program you know things have to be contextually appropriate mm -hmm. So that's one way to look at it, all right? So something which works in UK, given the UK's history, might not necessarily work in the States or in Germany or in Sweden. They, they all have different histories. Mm -hmm. You know, when we did a project in South Wales recently, the most effective intervention which came up was building a bike park. Because if you build a bike park, it was built on the back of a pub, which formerly housed the drug dealers who now can't meet there anymore. And the fire service paid for, you know, trails up into the woods so they could be fire spotters in summer and the whole community benefited and it didn't cost anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So small initiatives locally initiated within a wider sense-making framework is one of the things we focus on. Mm -hmm. And I think the way we're going to change things is lots and lots of small initiatives with common alignment or at least coherent alignment rather than single wide programs. I mean, that sort of big vision, big program stuff, it just hasn't worked in human history. Yeah, because it falls apart on the particulars of the local. So you think that the change that we need will be made bottom up rather than top down then? It needs to be bottom up and top down. It's, it's a coordination issue. You need top down initiative, but bottom up design. Just a, a slightly different turn here. Do you think that there are certain cultures that are better at managing complexity and chaos, like the Eastern cultures, for instance, which are um, a lot more um, relationship driven and comfortable with uncertainty than Western culture? Or, or do you disagree with that? I don't think it's an east-west thing for a start, all right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is a difference between socially atomistic and communitarian cultures. So Northern Europe, North America tends to be socially atomistic. It puts the individual first, whereas Latin America, Africa, the Celtic fringe of the UK, Southern Europe tend to put the collective first. Mm -hmm. And I think societies whose identity is collective understand complexity faster and have more frameworks that they can use mm -hmm. to actually apply it. But it's not a West-East thing. Could that not be the reason that uh, more collective-driven societies like Korea and Singapore and China responded better to the pandemic than, and faster to the pandemic than, uh, let's Yeah, say, but you have to remember that they're single-party states as well. You've got to recognize the reality of the Western Europe, all right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a model I created a long time ago called See Attend Act. It says, will I see the data, will I pay attention to the data, will I act on the data through three separate processes? One of the things that a politician in the West has got to deal with is the fact that even if they know something is the right thing to do, it's not politically feasible to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's an added layer of complication. So what is your take on training and education? Do you think that all school systems treat reality too much as if it's ordered and that we are failing to prepare the children for the future? I think there's a lot of issues here, right? And I'm in danger of now saying in the good old days, all right? Let me give you two or three examples, all right? And I'll give them as UK examples. When I went to school, so at the age of 11, we went from primary school to secondary school and we were allowed to wear long trousers for the first time. <laughs> If you had to walk to school in the British winter in short trousers, you'd know how what blessed relief that was, right? <laughs> But then every week we walked to the front of the class and we were given a car. I still remember the first one I got and it said, you support capital punishment. And I had to speak for seven minutes without preparation about in favor of something I profoundly disagree with. And we did that every week from the age of 11 to 18. 
Now, that made us generalists because you read everything. We didn't know what we were going to get hit with, right? It made us hypercritical because we learned to argue another case. Mm-hmm. These days, they wouldn't do that. They try and teach people to be critical, which is actually the wrong way of doing it. So there's a lot, and you know, we, you know, we did exams at the age of 16 and 18. So between those periods, we had time to explore. So we had art societies, literary societies, science societies. People met and talked. They did lots of different things. My children were just, oh, my God, I've got a module to pass. You know, and it was just module by module, exam by exam, continuously. So there was no time for exploration. We know there's other things like children learning a poem every week actually improves cognitive pathways. So I think we need to think far more about creating capability in people rather than educating them for something. Mm-hmm. And probably the best illustration of that is our headmaster, um, bless his heart, he did three things, um, two of which were foolish, one of which was brilliant. Uh, the most foolish one was to ban all the boys from growing beards, at which point we all grew them. I mean, this was the second <laughs> We did mass disobedience. My have had one ever since, right? The second was to teach us how to use punch card machines for computers because he, he said we'd have a job for life. <laughs> okay. And teaching kids Java programming is the modern equivalent, right? But then the brilliant thing he did do, and it was accidentally, he made us all in touch typing. Now you need to understand this is an elite academic school where the 5% of the country are going to university. Touch typing is something taught to girls in the secondary modern. But I've been grateful to him ever since because that turned out to be a key motor skill. We, we shouldn't be thinking about education as what is the objective, what is the learning objective, what is the goal. We should be thinking more about creating general capability, rewarding original thinking. And one more example on this. My daughter, who's an anthropologist who now works for me in her early 30s, she got the university prize for the best master's thesis for a piece of work on Deleuze and assemblage theory, which I still think was brilliant. She wrote the essence of that in a first-year undergraduate essay, and it failed. Mm-hmm. And I had to explain to her that she had to write to the marking plan. You know, doing something original wasn't allowed at undergraduate level because there was an overstructured objective-based marking plan and you had to write to that. And I think that's deeply damaging. Same as the modular type examination we got in, in schools before university. Well, if you say that the education systems should focus more on creating generalists, is that something that companies should be looking for yeah, much as well? Yeah, and a generalist is not somebody with T-shaped skills. That's one of the big mistakes the Agile movement make. If, if you're a deep expert in something and a shallow expert in other things, the deep expertise will always come through. Mm-hmm. Okay? A generalist knows a little bit about a lot of things, but not much about anything. Mm-hmm. And they have the ability to synthesize and integrate. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't want too many generalists, but you need some. And certainly the British educational system hasn't produced, well, isn't anybody under, under the age of 50 who would fall in that category anymore mm-hmm. because it's over-specialized. But you need specialists as well. And it's interesting. Look at the biology of this, yeah, the cognitive biology. Innovation in the maths and sciences is under 25. In the humanities, it's over 45. And there are reasons for that connected with brain plasticity. And we're not thinking about how we handle you know, a, a lot of the core biology that we now know here. Do you think that even specialists have to be very different than they used to be? Yeah, I always say to people, why are you studying computer sciences? Because in the next three years, it will change so much that anything you've been taught now won't work. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You're much better studying anthropology or design or philosophy because those skills will work well with computers in the future. So you can pick up technical skills in a fast-moving field very quickly. But would the best education not be a combination of both? For some yes, for some not. I mean, I'm partially dyslectic. Dyslectics are good generalists. 
uh, people with partial autism are really good mathematicians and coders. There isn't a universal framework here. We need variety in the system. And that's the other problem in education. It doesn't reward variety. It doesn't reward originality. I mean, I remember our headmaster in school, a guy who banned beards, all right? Mm -hmm. But he also taught English. He wasn't a professional administrator. He still taught. And the idea a headmaster wouldn't teach was just unthinkable. But they become bureaucrats. But he would turn up in an English class and he'd teach what he thought he should teach at the time. There was no teaching plan. But he got straight A's from everybody because he inspired them. And that doesn't happen anymore. It's become highly, and the whole process re-engineering revolution, the whole systems thinking focus on targets and objectives, all of that was deeply, deeply problematic and it's been deeply damaging. You seem to be very big on diversity. How would you stimulate diversity in companies? Get rid of all that nonsense about common values and common beliefs. Because <laughs> the, good, the good news is it can't happen. The bad news is you would be homogeneous. Mm -hmm. We talk about coherent heterogeneity. So you need radical differences, but you can cohere when you need to. Mm -hmm. And that's not everybody thinking and believing the same thing. I have just maybe one final question because we have arrived at the end of the, the conversation. But when we talk about complexity, and I think maybe humans are not always very good at handling complexity. What, do you think we are bad at responding to complexity? I, or know, I think we're, we bri bad? we're brilliant at handling complexity. It's how we bring up children. Uh -huh. <laughs> we just forget it when we go into work. Uh -huh. But why is that? Because we've, uh, what happened in the 80s, all right, is systems thinking came into play and never confused systems thinking with complexity thinking. It's radically different. When I, I taught leadership with Peter Drucker a few times, and we both agreed scientific management and complexity had more in common with each other because they both respected human judgment, whereas systems thinking doesn't. So you've got this drive into process, repeatability, structure, you know, management by objectives, targets, mm -hmm. goals, all this sort of stuff, yeah? Authority went down, judgment went down, and people were entirely focused on effectively achieving goals based on a planning horizon, which everybody knew was unrealistic. Right? Mm -hmm. And we need to get away from that. It's not sustainable, never has been. And how do you think we should do that then? I think modern companies are going to have to be more sort of coordinated networks. Yeah, They need diversity within it. Um, we can actually measure culture, for example, and we can measure whether you've got the right degree of diversity for the uncertainty of the context you operate in. Uh, you need more mavericks. I mean, the current tendency towards transparency is quite dangerous because if you remove all transparency, senior managers can't hide people anymore and they won't take risks. If you have no transparency, then you get corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you need it's, it's Aristotle, it's the golden mean. Any human virtue is the average of the virtue not present or the virtue taken to excess. Mm -hmm. You need sufficient transparency to make sure there isn't corruption, but sufficient non-transparency that people can take risks and not be discovered later. There's a lot of things we can do here. Okay. But you, you talk about measuring culture. Is this not extremely difficult to measure? No, culture is a dispositional state. We can represent it as a fitness landscape. And that's the thing about complexity. You can measure dispositional states. You just can't measure cause and effect. Mm -hmm. So propensities and dispositions can be developed and managed. You just haven't got a cause and effect relationship. So, well, I think that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining our NextWorks Innovation Talks, Dave. And it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you Great. so much. Thank you. This was NextWorks Innovation Talks. Thank you so much for joining us and follow us on nextworks.com if you're hungry for more innovation news and events.